0: in mind let's bow together father we do just thank you so much for this morning another time that we have to be together uh, lord it's it's a joy to be around your people lord god and it's a blessing to serve one another and i just thank you for this time you give us to come together corporately to praise you and to worship you and i do pray as we look into your word now that. You would, first of all, enable me to share your word accurately as you intended, Lord God, so that you be glorified, but that we all would respond rightly as we hear your word and allow it to work in us, Lord God, that which is pleasing. And so we thank you for this time, and we commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many people have said, I've accepted... Jesus. Many people have a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I think the numbers in America are, they're going down quite a bit and rapidly, but 78% of people in America would claim to be Christians, uh, those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, within that, so sadly at times we see those who claim to be Christians uh, not living lives that appear to be in, uh, appear to be that of one who would know Jesus Christ. Um, it doesn't appear that their genuine faith is actually working, so maybe it's not genuine. Uh, faith that is manifest in uh, a true relationship with Christ will manifest in a love for the body of Christ, a seeing of others as more important than yourself in the context of obeying Jesus. And so often in churches, people just do what they want. They come when they want. They leave when they want. It's all centered around what they want. But we're going to see today uh, that you can truly spot changed lives. And what are we to do when we spot changed lives? First of all, we should be looking at our own lives to see, have we been changed? Or has sin gotten the way since I was changed by Jesus Christ. And secondly, when we do spot those who have truly come to faith in Jesus Christ, and it is evident, as we'll see today, that should cause us to be thankful and to be continually praying for one another. So with that in mind, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we are continuing our new look at uh, 1 Thessalonians. And we began, and I gave a lot of context last week, so feel free to get the CD to listen to that. I'm just going to review a little bit of what we went through last week. But we're going to be looking today at verses 2 through 5, but it really flows all the way through verse 10, so keep that in mind. Well, in the Scriptures, we gain great insight into the context of this epistle. We see in Acts chapter 16 that Silas, Timothy, and Luke were with the Apostle Paul on what we call his second missionary journey. And it was around 49 A.D., and having come from the east they were kept by god from going south to asia as luke would write in Acts sixteen six, having been forbidden by the spirit holy spirit to speak the word in asia and then they were also kept from going north to turkey as luke shares again in verse 7 of act 16 they were trying to go to bithynia and the spirit of jesus did not permit them god then in his sovereignty led them west Uh, and passing through Mysia, they came down to Troas. And while waiting there, Paul received his marching orders in a vision recorded in Acts chapter 16, verses 9 to 10, that they were to go preach the gospel in Macedonia. And so Paul and his companions left in obedience for Europe to preach the gospel, crossing the Aegean Sea and on to Philippi. And then in Acts chapter 16, we have the record of the first european converts where paul shares the gospel with lydia and some other women at the riverside and then uh, they come to faith and after uh, being imprisoned paul shares the gospel with the philippian jailer and his household and in just a few weeks the nucleus for the philippian church was formed lydia the jailer and their households and What an exciting time to be in the will of God, to be walking in his will and obeying him. God was producing and bringing about a tremendous work of his word in people's lives. And then it's at this point, after being treated shamefully by the Philippian magistrates, they released Paul and begged him to leave Philippi. So Paul and his companions journeyed about 50 miles west to Thessalonica. Now, in Thessalonica, Paul was there at least three weeks, probably a little longer, until the Jews of the city got so enraged by his teaching concerning Jesus that they created a riot and then Paul had to flee to Berea and then Athens and then on to Corinth. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 2, the latter portion in the beginning of chapter 3, Uh, we see that Paul, having been bereft for just a short time from the Thessalonians, probably less than a year, they're they're less than a year old in the faith, is in Athens. And he is concerned about their faith, that the tempter may have tempted them in the midst of all their persecutions. So he sends Timothy to, to, to strengthen and encourage them as to their faith. And then Paul went on to Corinth. And in Corinth, it appears that this is where he received Timothy back and his report. And this letter is the response to Timothy's report about the Thessalonian church. Now, this breaks down the writing of this book sometime around his 15-month stay, Paul's 15-month stay in Corinth between 50 and 51 A.D. However, it appears that he wrote them as soon as he received the news from Timothy. So it was probably more likely around the spring... Of 50 ad that he responds with this letter to the thessalonians and again it is important to note that these thessalonians are only a few months old in the faith maybe under a year could be a year but probably not that much and the apostle paul has taught them great truth in the beginning of their salvation and he reminds them of that in this letter about what they had learned right away and so often in churches you have this false view from uh wicked men who reject the truth of god and the power of god through his word that say well people can't learn they can't understand they're too young no that's not true god gives us his spirit and by his ability we are able to learn the truth of god and grow in those truths and build upon those building blocks of truth and so with that in mind after Giving a greeting, which we looked at last week, we see that Paul and his companion's desire, ultimately God's desire, was for his grace to be to you and his peace. That we would function by his grace, everything from Christ, nothing from us. And we would walk in his peace. And it is from that portion we come to the beginning of his letter where I believe we're going to see how to spot a truly changed life in Christ. Now, I'm not sharing this this way that you would go out and be fruit inspectors of everyone else. Primarily, we should be checking ourselves. We should be examining ourselves. And, and then when we see true faith, which is going to be evident in others, it should cause us to rejoice and praise him for that. So, and then we're going to see that specifically true believers can spot true believers, and within that, we ought to be thankful. So again, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'm going to read through, actually, verses 1 through 10, because it's all together, but we're going to look at verses 2 to 5 today. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And now our passage, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Now that's where we will end today, but I want to keep reading because what we're going to see later on really reflects back on what we're looking at. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're going to take a look at true conversions. True conversions where there's no doubt whether they came to faith or not. The evidence is there. There was someone who wrote a book, Evidence Demands a Verdict. I don't agree with that. You just read the Bible and it convicts you of your sin. But here we see in the context of this, we do have the evidence of true faith. And that should cause us to say and see and reflect in the context of our relationship with the Lord, in the context of thankfulness and praise. So we're going to see today two things, and they both relate to changed lives. The first thing we're going to see is that Paul and his companions were so thankful for the Thessalonians' changed lives. They were so thankful. Again, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Now, as we go through this, mention look at all the we's and ours. It, it's the it's Paul, uh, Sylvanus, and Timothy that are that are giving thanks, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing. Beloved brethren, uh, by, beloved by God, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And he says here, uh, in this passage is tremendous realities concerning, uh, what has happened in their lives. And we'll, we'll look at more of this in a minute. But as we look at verses two through four, I want to point out the structure of this passage before we get into the details. We have the main verb, which is basically we give thanks. We give thanks continually. And then there are three participial phrases. Usually participles are ING words. It doesn't stand on its own. Running to the store. You have to have another verb. I was running to the store. So we have three participles going with this main phrase. What does that mean? We give thanks. One, and it says, uh, making mention, verse 2. Then verse 3, constantly bearing in mind. And then verse 4, Knowing. We give thanks making mention, we give thanks constantly bearing in mind, and we give thanks knowing. That's the structure of this passage. And so it is all centered around the thankfulness to God, and then we see some reasons why or some things that are connected to it. And notice with that structure in mind, Paul and his companions were thankful. They were constantly praying for them all. We give thanks, verse 2, to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our, in our prayers. Now, as we begin to make some observations here, you'll notice as we read through chapter 1, and I've mentioned it before, we have lots of we and our statements here. This is speaking of Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. And we have a statement concerning their thankful prayer. And it's important to observe this because they are praying. And evidently, they're not only praying individually, they're praying together. We give thanks always in our prayers. The implication is Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are praying together. That they're praying. And so often we are Lone Ranger Christians. We pray by ourselves. We do that. That's fine. We should be praying. But we should also be praying together as a body. We should be coming together and praying together, lifting our voices up to the Lord, lifting those requests before Him, thanking Him together. They're praying together. They're praying together. And notice it's in a present tense. We continually give thanks, and it's also strengthened with this word always. We continually give thanks to God, always. To God. Our prayer is directed towards the Lord. You see, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have the Spirit of God, and the gap between us and God has been removed because sin has been removed. And we can boldly come before His throne. We can pray to the living God, and He hears us according to His will. He hears us, and His Spirit intercedes for us. And here they are giving thanks always for these Thessalonians. And Paul had an ongoing heart of thankfulness for the reality of what God was doing in the lives of real believers. Look at chapter two, verse thirteen. He he reveals his thankfulness for how they responded to the gospel. First Thessalonians two thirteen. And for this reason we constantly thank God. We constantly thank God. Now I have a question for you. Do you thank God? Do you constantly thank God for the work he is doing in believers around you? If you don't, that probably means you're self-focused. And when we are self-focused, we don't think of others. But when the Lord changes our hearts and causes us to see others as more important, we begin to thank God for those around us and the things that God is doing. He says here um, in chapter uh, 2, And we, for this reason, we constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message you accepted it not as the word of men but for what it truly is the word of god which also performs its work in you who believe they were thankful to the lord for what god had done they were thankful for the thessalonians and we're going to see specifically some reasons in a moment and this thankfulness was directed to god we give thanks to god thank you lord for what you have done in the lives of these people thank you that they received your word not as the word of men but your word which performs its work in those who believe thank you lord thank you for what you are doing in the lives of your people and so with that we see that god had brought salvation to these thessalonians we'll see that even more clearly in a moment and paul was so thankful for genuine salvation And oh, brother and sister, what a blessing it is to actually see the genuine faith of a real believer in Jesus Christ. It is so wonderful to see that. And if you're a true believer, it should cause you to be thankful. Wow, this is wonderful, Lord, what you are doing in their lives. And prayer is the sphere in which thankfulness is manifest. And there are so many passages where Paul begins his letters with thankfulness concerning those whom... God has allowed him to minister to or be around. The apostle Paul recognized that his life was a, was a running ministry from when God had called him out of darkness unto his light and that the people he had brought him before, you would see him continually looking back and praying for them and concerned for them. And God brings people in our lives, believers in our lives, that we need to be praying for and praising Him for those true believers in our lives in whom the Lord is working and praying for them. Are you thankful for God's work here in this body? I'm thankful for His Word. I'm thankful for what He's doing in the hearts of those who have responded. And we need to follow the Apostle Paul and his companions' example. Now notice this thankfulness was not a thankfulness without discernment. This wasn't just a blanket thankfulness in a sense that didn't understand what they were being thankful for. Something had happened to these Thessalonians that had brought about their changed lives and because of that they were thankful. And now not only were Paul and his companions thankful and praying for them, but they were also constantly remembering something within the context of that thankfulness. We give thanks always. We're continually giving thanks always. And then he begins saying, something here look at uh, verse two constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our lord jesus christ in the presence of god our god and father now these believers are less than a year old but they are manifesting the fruit of a genuine conversion to jesus christ there's no doubt in Paul's mind, as we're going to see, that they have truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, We give thanks always, making mention of you in our prayers. We're, we're praying for you. We're, we're, we're mentioning you in our prayers. And then he goes to the second part of simpler, bear, He says, um, constantly bearing in mind. The term bearing in mind, translated that from the Greek, speaks of recalling to mind. You know, if we don't recall things to mind, our mind will just go all over the place. We need to choose what we think about. We need to choose what we recall to mind. And he says constantly, it's, it's modified by an adverb, continually or unceasingly bringing to mind, remembering something. Remembering something. And within that context of thankful prayer, there are three things that he is constantly remembering. First of all, their work of faith. Your work of faith your, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. We're going to see, folks, that these three things are evidence of a genuinely changed life. When you spot this, you're spotting a believer. When you see these genuine realities in someone's life, It is evidence that something has happened in their lives. It is evidence they've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that with true believers, their faith will work, their love will toil, and their hope will endure. And we're going to see that. And if it's not happening in your life, either you're not a true believer or you've got sin in the way. Sin has encroached on your heart. And God is gracious because he loves you. And he wants to weed that out so that your faith would work and your love would labor or toil and your hope would endure. Would endure. So he mentions three things that are unceasingly coming to his mind. And the first thing he says that calls to his mind is the faith in Christ that produces work. He says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. Paul and his companions are brought to thankful prayer as they constantly bring to mind these Thessalonians literally work of faith or faith's work. The term work here is the term Greek term comes from the Greek term ergon, which speaks of work and it's often translated deeds, deeds or work. It's it's something that is happening. It's not it's not a a thought. It's an, an actual action. It's an action genuine faith saving faith in jesus christ will produce work and not the opposite works don't produce faith faith produces a changed life you see we were saved by faith in jesus christ and not by ourselves but we were saved through through grace by faith in jesus christ not of ourselves it is the gift of god not of works lest any man should boast But when one is abiding in God's grace, trusting in Christ, it will manifest a work. It will manifest a faith that works. Let me exemplify this. Turn to James chapter 2. And I'm going to walk through verses 14 to 26 and explain what's going on here because this is a great passage to speak of and show us faith that works. Faith that works. Some people have quote-unquote saving faith, but it doesn't work. And the implication would be, can that type of faith save someone? The answer is no. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. So here, James chapter 2, and I want to start with verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? That's the key to interpreting this portion of James, that phrase, can that faith save him? Is it saving faith that that person has if there's no work from that faith? That's the question. And the answer is implied, no, it can't. It's a rhetorical question. And so he says here, what is it, uses it, my brother? The man says he has faith, but has no works. Can that faith save him? And then he goes on to give an illustration in the context of love with those religious people there that may not be saved. They had a phony religion. They were hearers and not doers. And he says, if a brother and sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, now this is a very Jewish religious phrase, go in peace and be warmed and be filled. Right, It's a a very religious phrase. And someone says that, and you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? The implication is, your faith isn't working at all. Something's wrong here. Because faith, as we are going to see, is going to manifest in a love for one another. And so when we are just on our own doing our own thing, we're going to see there's something wrong there. There's something wrong in how we react to other people. And so he says here, what use is that? What use is that? And then verse 7 even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. He's giving them the rhetorical uh, uh, given that, okay, you say you got faith, but that faith you have, quote unquote, it's dead because there's no work, there's nothing coming from that. And you see, in this, in this portion in James, he says in chapter one verse, chapter two verse one, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's who it's in. And if you have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to receive his spirit. You're going to, when you trust in him, you're going to have a changed desire in your life. You're going to want to be around his people. You're going to want to serve them. It's going to be a change. And it's going to be a labor, but the labor is not in that. The labor is maybe getting weary, possibly, as we'll see. So then, he says here, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. If your faith in Christ has never produced a love for the body of Christ, I would examine yourself. I would examine yourself. Now, sometimes the love is not, the opportunity to love in certain ways is not there, but there's always opportunity. There's ways to love your brother or sister just to see them more important than yourself. If you just come here for your own time, your own way, just come in and out, you know, that's not, that's self-love. That means I care more about myself. But God will change your heart and cause you to care more about others. Care more about others. He says, but someone, verse 18, may say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you the faith by my works. You want to say you have genuine faith? Show me. Show me. I'll show you by how it is manifest in my obedience to God in relationship to the body of Christ. That's what he's saying. It's an illustration. True faith in Jesus Christ will be manifest in deeds, in the context of dependent obedience to Christ. And notice he says there's a further reproof to the one who has dead faith. You believe that God is one. And that's a very Jewish statement because the Jews believed, yes, here it is Israel, the Lord your God is one. And there were some who came to faith in Jesus Christ, quote-unquote, but they really hadn't come to faith. And he's saying, you believe that God is one. You, you ascend to the facts concerning God. You've got them right, okay? But he says, uh, that yet you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. That's a big rebuke. Ascending to the facts concerning God does not make you a believer. The demons believe and they are in absolute rebellion of God. The demons understand that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. They understand those truths. You know, but they don't, they are, they are in absolute rebellion. You can believe those things, but he says here, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? No matter what you say about Jesus. If your faith is not working, and the primary manifestation of that work is with believers, as we're going to see, and as was read earlier, if that's not working, something's wrong. Either you never came to faith, or sin has encroached in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. You see, they wanted to be around. Paul was desiring to be around this church. He was desiring to be together. There was a sense of love, as we'll see. Now, continuing on, he's going to go ahead and give some examples of working faith. Of working faith. He begins in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now, now be careful. Don't take it just alone there. He's not saying we are justified by works. Even though he's saying that. If you read the whole thing, you'll see that's not his point. His point is, we are justified by faith, but that faith will work. It will be an evidence that we are justified. You see? Because we know in Romans chapter 4 that we are not justified by works. But he's giving an example that real faith, the context is real faith works. And here is an example of that working. He says, Abraham our father was justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar. Genesis 22. The Lord told, or told Abraham to go to the place where he would tell him to sacrifice his son. Abraham, here I am. Yes, he did it. And he believed that God could raise his son from the dead. He said, The lad and I will return. He believed. It was an evidence. His faith was working as he obeyed the Lord. You see, working faith is, is in coral with obeying the Lord. You see, now we don't obey him perfectly. We fail. We're sinners. We're the confessors of sin. But by and large, we will be the ones who obey the Lord, specifically in the relationships he has put around us, our marriages, our work, our family, our church, our church. And so often people are so selfish to just go their own way, do their own thing because it's all about them. But here it's not, should not be that way. Should not be that way. Abraham obeyed. And it says here, uh, you see, his faith, which he had, was working with his works. And the result of his worth was faith was perfected or or completed. It was, it was brought to completion. You see, if you've got genuine faith, it's going to manifest in genuine obedience. And it's going to be evidence of a genuine relationship with Christ. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of god you see man is justified by works not by faith alone now take that rightly the context is saving faith versus bogus faith saving faith that works you see what i'm saying you see if you have a faith and you say yes i'm justified by faith but it never works you were never justified you see your works are an evidence you were justified by faith and he goes on and gives another illustration about rahab In the same way was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Rahab believed in the Lord God of Israel, and that caused her to risk her life to spare the spies, to lead them out. Faith was working. Faith was working, and that was an evidence of her being justified. It was a manifestation of that. And so don't misunderstand the passage. We're not saved by works. We're not justified by works. But real faith that's not dead, saving faith, will work. It will work. A lot of people say they have faith. But is your faith working? Has it ever worked? Has it ever worked? Has there been a change in your life? Where you have a different disposition about those around you. You have a different disposition that you don't see yourself as important anymore. And when you do, you realize it's wrong. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Where you begin to see others as more important than yourself. You humble yourself. You humble your, your will. Not my will, Lord God, but thy will be done. And you begin to obey the Lord in the context of faith. You see, if you're just a hearer of the word and not a doer, your religion is worthless. Turn back to James 1. James 1. You see, because true faith in Jesus produces a change, a desire to obey Him. It's not a struggle to obey Him. It's not burdensome. It's just a struggle with the temptations we have, right? When we yield to Christ, it's a wonderful thing to be around his body. It's a wonderful thing to serve him. It's a wonderful thing, even in the midst of difficulties. James one twenty two, But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Some people hear the word and they can spout the doctrine. They got it down. But there's zero love in their lives for others. It's self-love in a spiritual package. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks in his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. He hears the word and I see God showing me rightly. And right now, maybe God is showing you rightly. He's he's exposing you in the mirror. But then you walk away after the service is over and you forget what you've heard. That probably is an evidence that your faith isn't a saving faith or sin is in the way. Sins in the way. What about 1 John chapter 2? Turn there, 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look a lot at 1 John later also, so just keep your fingers nearby there. Put your marker on that. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. He's not talking about perfection because earlier he says, if anyone says we're without sin, he's a liar. Talking about people who have changed hearts, who do mess up, but go to Jesus Christ, get forgiven, and move on, and keep loving. Okay? 1 John chapter 2 verse 4. The one who says, now remember, people say a lot. I do this. The one who says, I have come to know him. That's speaking of Jesus. And does not keep his commandments. That's not the, the Ten Commandments. The word is ontly, not namas. It's, it's Christ's word. What he says to us in his, bio, in his word. And does not keep, or you could translate that obey, is a liar. We're going to see, if you say you know Jesus and you don't love the body of Christ, you're a liar. You're a liar. I'm not saying it. God is saying it. That's the context of 1 John. God is saying it. Now I'm not talking about perfect love. We fail. We get selfish. Sin gets in the way. We get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. No doubt. But there should be some fruit in a real believer's life. Good trees do not produce bad fruit bad trees do not produce good fruit It's just the reality Of what christ has done if you've been saved And he says here but whoever keeps his word in him The love of god and that's a clue to what he's going to be talking about has been truly perfected By this we know that we're in him If you see others as more than poor than yourself because of jesus change your heart You can know you're saved if, he, if you begin to obey the Lord in relationship to the body of Christ because of Christ, you can know you're saved. You start to obey the Lord in, in the relationships he's given you. You can know there's a change in your life. There's a change. There's a change. So what was this work of faith specifically that they were aware of? Well, certainly we know he speaks of some of it later on in chapter 1. Go back to First Thessalonians. Chapter 1, it's thought that the verses 6 through 10 are kind of an explanation of what he's saying here in the beginning here. But there's more to it than that, and we'll see that. Chapter 1, verse 8, 1 Thessalonians. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything for they themselves report to us what kind of reception we had in the past with you and how you turned to God from idols. Their faith initially, when they came to faith, worked. It worked. They turned to God from idols. They turned to God from idols. And their faith was broadcast their faith in Jesus Christ. And so their turning was also noticed to serve the Lord. He says here at 1 Thessalonians, and it goes on to talk about, and we'll see it in a minute, to serve the Lord and to wait for his son to serve. He says here how they turn to God from to serve, to serve. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you turn to serve Christ. You were serving yourself, and now you serve Jesus. He's your master now. He's your Lord. Some people turn to Jesus Christ and they still serve themselves with a religious veneer. They still go on serving themselves. It's what they do every day. Can that type of faith save you? Can that save you? These had a genuine faith. They were in a pagan culture and they turned to God. Faith, the work of faith was produced by God's word when they turned to the Lord. Faith is the response of the soul to the word of God, one pastor writes. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ, Romans chapter 10, 17. And this service that they had to serve a living God, it was not isolated. It was based on what God said concerning his desires for us. Done in the context, as we will see, of a labor of love. A labor of love. Indeed, the biggest area in which our faith will work is love for the Lord and his people. You should love the Lord God, right? With all your heart, mind, soul. And you love your neighbor. Second greatest. Connected to the first. It's 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 evidence that demands a verdict, in a sense, in your life. So notice, we see that their faith worked. They had working faith. Working faith. But secondly, there was something else that was going on that he was saying. That you're real believers. So we praise the Lord for this. <coughs> Excuse me for a second. Verse 2. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. So they're always praying. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. And what else are they calling to mind? Recalling constantly your labor of love or love's labor, love's toil, love's toil. They could recall to mind the truth of their labor of love. It was evident. It was evident. It was evident. You see, when you turn from yourself to Jesus Christ, out of a changed disposition for God, you are able to love him and love his people. And if this hasn't happened, examine. Maybe something's gotten in the way. Maybe you've, you've, you've turned from your first love. You see, loving... As a new believer, and then a believer, is innate to who we are. Look up a little farther in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Chapter 4. These are new believers. Paul's not saying, I'm not sure if you know the Lord or not. I don't know. Oh, boy, we're really concerned about this. Wow. No, he's saying your work of faith, your labor of love. Look at First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, that's phileo love, that's uh, uh, brotherly love. You have no need to anyone to write you, 1st Thessalonians 4 9, for you yourselves are taught by God to agape one another. It's innate to your new relationship with the Lord. The only time that that's broken is when sin is in the way, and that sin is usually involved with selfishness. Selfishness. And notice, keep reading, he says here. He says here, um, to us to love one another, for indeed you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. Indeed, you are loving. You are loving. You are doing it. You are doing it. You see, when we walk by the Spirit, we will experience the fruit of the Spirit. When we abide in Christ, we'll experience that fruit of the Spirit when the first one is love, right? Love. All of a sudden, my desires are lower on the pedestal than you. You are more important in the context of obeying God's Word. And it's when I become more important, love is out the window. Out the window. And Satan's very effective in tempting us to see things from a wrong perspective so that love goes out the window. And we need to confess that when we do. And it's a special love for the body of Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love which you have for all the saints. You can't have love for people if you're not around. Now I'm speaking to the choir, you're all here. But you can't have love when you're not around. I tell you right now, when you're not around, you are exhibiting self-love because for some reason you're not around. Now, sometimes there's work and things like that. That's different. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you have the opportunity to be around. When Jesus Christ saved me, I couldn't stay away from the body of Christ. And yes, were there people that irritated me and bothered me and were were people I needed to love and they needed to love me? Yes. But I couldn't stay away because God had changed my heart. God had changed my heart. And these Thessalonians had changed hearts. They had changed hearts. Indeed, we see that the Apostle Peter goes so far to say that we were saved unto love. This is what we were saved unto. And if it's not happening, examine yourself. You may know all the doctrine in the world. 1 Peter chapter 1.22 Since in obedience to the truth, you have purified your souls for a sincere, not a phony baloney, hypocritical love, but a sincere love of the brethren. And then he goes on to say, For you have not been born again with things that were perishable. You were born again with the living and abiding word of God, that word that was preached to you. When Jesus saved us, he saved us unto a sincere love of the body of Christ. And guess what? The body of Christ is going to hurt you because we're all sinners. But love doesn't take it personally. Love confesses it when we do. Love then sees the others as more important. And love obeys God in the midst of difficulty and persecution or hardship. You see? Turn to 1 John 4, and we had some of that read already, but I want to walk through 1 John 4. Actually, 1 John 2, actually, first. 1 John 2. 1 John is a discourse on the fact that if there isn't love for the body of Christ, something's really wrong. But it's also there to written to encourage true believers that you're really saved. It's been written to show you that you know the Lord. And so if you hear it and you can identify with it, then it should be a blessing to you. But if not, God loves you and he wants you to see yourself. 1 John 2, verse 4, and I've already talked about that portion, about coming to know him. Um, Verse uh, 6, the one who says he abides in him, or actually, I'm going to read it again. 1 John 2, verse 4, the one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. We can know, we can know that we are in him. The one who says that he abides in him ought also to walk in the same manner as he walked. Jesus loved him to the end. And he loved him to the end by obeying the Father. That's what he did. Beloved, I'm not writing you a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment which is the word which you have heard. Now move up to chapter 3. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but chapter 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. The one who does not what? Love his brother. So that... For this is the message which you have heard from what? The beginning. That we should love one This is the message from the beginning. It's the big evidence, by the way. It's the big evidence that we should love one another. Look down at verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Now, Jesus laid down his life in the context of obedience to the Father's will. And we now lay down our lives in the context of obedience to his word. Greg's got to die. If Greg doesn't die, my will dies, and you're in trouble, because I'm not going to love you. you got to die to yourself and allow God to love through you. And when Jesus loved, what did it take him to? The cross. But yet glory. Sufferings for the glories to follow. How about chapter 3, verse 23 in 1 John? And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Christ, Jesus Christ, and What? Love one another just as he commanded us. And the one who... And so just as he commanded us. From the beginning. It's as simple as that. And then turn to chapter 4, which was read for us earlier, but I want to just read a portion of it. Chapter 4. And John explains what real love looks like. Because we might think real love is maybe just goody two-shoe stuff, you know? That's not it that's not it first john chapter 4 look at verse 20 if someone says and notice in all the theme in these books in james and here they say they know jesus they say they love god they say they love their brethren they say they have faith if someone says i love god and hates his brother he's a liar he says, for the one who does not love his brother from whom he can, has seen cannot love whom God whom he has not seen. If you can't love those in your midst, then you don't love God. You don't love God. Maybe you never came to faith or sin has taken a hold in your heart. Confess it, be forgiven, be restored. Rejoice in his forgiveness like David. And then he goes on. He says, and this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. It's that simple. First John 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child. Not speaking of Jesus here, but his children, child born of him. By this we know, how do we know we love the children of God? When we love God and observe his commands. We obey his word. obey his word. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God, obeying his word. And his word says a lot about how we are to be around one another. It says a lot about how we interact with one another. It says a lot about how we respond to one another. You see, love covers a multitude of sins. Keep fervent in your love for one another. So many passages. Forgiving. Loving. Walk in love as Jesus walked in love and gave himself as a sacrifice. It's an evidence of a genuine relationship with Christ. And you know what? We always see love really close to serving. 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And then he goes on to talk about serving one another. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 12 after he gives a discourse on spiritual gifts? Let love be without hypocrisy. Our love is manifest in obeying God by serving, and with that comes labor. Back to our passage. Your work of faith, the deeds of faith, your labor of love. Now that term labor, Copas spoke of beating. And it spoke basically of something ultimately that was bothersome and wearying. Guess what? If you love, the body of Christ, you're going to get beat up. And if you self-love, you're going to run away when you get beat up. Because he who separates himself seeks his own desire. I'm glad the Lord Jesus didn't run away. I'm glad he followed through with the Father's will. He loved us perfectly. It speaks of bothersome, wearying, exhausting mental or physical labor. It is wearying to love the saints down here who are in such sin including myself right it's wearying it's difficult but as one pastor said i don't get tired or toil in the toil or the work i i I get i don't even know what he said but uh you didn't get tired in it so (laughs) i maybe i wrote it down here somewhere not important back to the word It speaks of labor that comes from love loves labor love causes you to work and toil Love causes you to endure, to work, and to toil. It causes you to obey the Lord in relationship to one another. Love's labor. Love's labor. And it was quite evident in them. First Thessalonians 3, 5, For this reason, when I can do it no longer, Paul says, I wrote, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter may have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. First Thessalonians 3, 6, but now that Timothy has come to us, and he has brought good news of your faith and love. Good news. They're loving. Good news. Not bad news. Not frowny face, sad bad news, but good news. Good news. Good news of their love. So the Apostle Paul and his companions recall to mind love's toil. We have faith's work, love's toil. Love's toil. Would someone, if they looked in your life, say that they saw love's toil for the body of Christ? It's manifest in different ways. Certainly there are the ways that we're to serve in the scriptures, but there are other ways in which we love one another. But it doesn't happen apart from one another. It doesn't happen. Love's toil. A genuine love for the body of Christ based on a dependence and trust and abiding in Christ. Now, folks, if your love is conditional... If your serving is conditionally based, based on what you get out of it or how people treat you, and I've seen that a lot of times around the years here, people serve based on their own desires, the way they want to do it, and if it doesn't work out that way, they're gone. Is that your love? I'm so glad Jesus wasn't like that. I'm so glad. And we need to be like him. Because every one of us is tempted to be and think wrongly when difficulty comes. And God is gracious. God is gracious. True love toils. It toils. Well, not only does faith work and love labor, notice they had a steadfastness of hope. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we give thanks, verse 2, to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and number three, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. These believers were changed. They had a steadfastness of hope, or you could say it this way, the term steadfastness here is hupomone. It speaks of remaining number. It speaks of patient endurance. Your hope that endures. (coughs) Your hope that endures. And notice the object of that hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here again, they were manifesting a genuinely changed life. Their hope was no longer in whatever would work out. Their hope was in Jesus. That's where our hope is. My hope is not in that you'll respond to what I share. I pray that you do. My hope's not in that. I hope you do, but my hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Him. And their hope was enduring in the midst of difficulty. They were suffering. They were suffering. Look back in chapter 1 at verse 9. For they themselves report about what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve, there you go, that's love, a living God, a living and true God, and verse 10, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Enduring hope. Hope is not in what is seen, but what is not seen. We're believers. We should be hoping, putting our hope in Jesus Christ. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I hope should be in Jesus. And guess what? If you're a real believer, your hope is going to endure. It's going to endure. It's going to endure through the difficulties. It's going to endure. Your faith's going to work. Your love's going to labor. And your hope is going to endure. It's going to endure. They were waiting for the Son of God to come from heaven. They're waiting on Christ's return to set all things right. Is everything right now? Boy, it isn't right. Just watch TV for a little while. I don't recommend it. It's not right. But Christ is going to make it right. He's going to make it right. And he will deliver us from the wrath to come. He's coming. He's coming. The Thessalonians had an unmovable, unwavering hope in the Lord Jesus Christ for the future, they weren't moaning and groaning and fretting over the future. Their hope wasn't in how the life this life would work out. Hope's in Jesus, in Jesus, and that hope will never be dashed. Never be dashed. You see, they were born again to a living hope. First Peter one three. In Colossians uh, chapter chapter three or chapter two, we see that the Colossians were excuse me, Colossians chapter 1. The Colossians were indeed uh, looking towards that hope, looking towards that hope. And I don't, time-wise, I don't have time to go there, but you can read Colossians chapter 1. We've been born again to a living hope. We're to be ready to give an account for the hope that we have. First Peter 3. What hope do you have? Do you hope in Christ coming again to make all things right? I hope so. I hope so. That's an evidence of a changed life. Now some of you have allowed sin to get in the way and that hope has just gone bye-bye. Just confess and be forgiven and look back at what God says about his son coming back and what he's going to do. Hope in Christ. Hope in Christ. The Thessalonians had a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have this phrase back in verse uh, 3 in the presence of our God and Father. And it's grammatically, it could be their prayers in the presence of our God and Father, or this hope is. And and both things are true. Both things are true. It was a genuine hope. It was a genuine hope in the presence of our God and Father. It's the real deal. It's the real deal. You know, in uh, Revelation chapter 2, in the Lord's Jesus analysis of of the ephesian church he says this he says i know your ergon work and i know your toil, your kapas, same word we have here and i know your perseverance your hupomone i know this you're true believers i got this wrong with you but you're, you're believers i know it faith hope and love it's a genuine real deal the real deal let me ask you this are these evidences that could be seen in your life Examine yourself. We need to examine ourselves. Is there any sin that's gotten in the way in any of these areas? Anything that's gotten in the way? Or maybe you don't know the Lord, and today is the day of salvation. He's so graciously showing you that you're not where you really think you are, and He wants you to be saved. Just call upon the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, I believe You died for my sins, and You rose from the dead. I'm a sinner. I need salvation whoever will cry upon the name of the Lord, call upon him, will be saved. And he will then change you and you will have a new disposition where your faith will work, where your love will toil and your hope will endure. And then believers, if there's anything in the way, root it out. It's cancerous. It's spiritually cancerous. Get it out. Get it out. Be forgiven and let your faith work and your love toil, and your hope endure. Well, we could stop right there, but I have a little bit left here, so I will walk through it. I don't know how long this has been, but uh, if you uh, you had a good breakfast, we'll finish up, all right? Well, notice they understood how God changed lives, how he did it, how he did it. Look at verse 4. This is the third participle. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. We give thanks knowing. And this word for knowing is a type of Greek word that speaks of knowledge that is gained from observation. It's not relational knowledge, it's observable knowledge. We continually know something, so we give thanks Constantly, constantly. And notice what he says, beloved brethren, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now in context, as he speaks of his choice, he's talking about salvation because he explains verse, middle of verse 4, for our gospel did not come to you. He's talking about salvation. I'm assured of your salvation because of what I saw, the evidence in your life. I know that God's word powerfully came upon you, which ultimately means as your response that you've been chosen by him and that you are beloved, brethren, by God. This term beloved speaks of something that happened in the past and continues into the present, a love that comes from God for no reason coming from the participant. You've been loved, and you're still loved. You're beloved. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The Apostle Paul said he no longer um, functions by himself, but he lives by Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Are you willing to give yourself up for the body of Christ? To serve him, no strings attached? To follow him, no strings attached? To take the difficulty that comes in doing so for the glories to follow and the reward that he promises, which is tied up in Christ? He says here, knowing, beloved brethren by God, his choice of you, his choice of you. Now we get into the unfortunately divisive subject of election. I'm glad we're running out of time because I don't want to uh, (laughs) spend the rest of the time on this. But uh, This word here is a pretty clear word. It means choice, eklage. It speaks of the act of picking or choosing someone and it always implies that someone else was not chosen. He says here, and it it occurs in the New Testament six times here, this eklage. And it speaks in every time of the divine selection upon human objects to bring them into a saving relationship for His purpose. That's how, how it is. It spoke of Paul when the good Ananias was questioning the Lord, and the Lord said to go to, to go to Saul. And he's like, uh, I don't know. I heard about that guy. He's a bad guy. And then the response was, but the Lord said to him, Acts 9:15, Go, for he is a ekklesia, a chosen instrument of mine. It's a chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings, sons of Israel. It's used four other times, the only other four times in the book of Romans, in chapters 9 and 11, speaking of God's independent choice of mankind for salvation. Now, a straightforward reading of Scripture reveals that, uh, and it cuts across man's pride, that God does choose. I'm going to read a few passages, but hold on, there's more to it. Because the imbalance is that people take one doctrine and raise it above another, and try to protect it by twisting or perverting another doctrine, or vice versa. When you accept what God says completely from the Word of God. Ephesians 1 3, you can note these verses because I'll go through them quickly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us, electos, that's the, another word, before us, be, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be wholly blameless holy and blameless before him in love. Colossians 3.12, And so those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved. For Second 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. That's pretty obvious. It's pretty clear. Second Peter 1.10 Therefore, beloved brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you and choosing you. And then there are a myriad of other passages that speak of the church as the elect or the chosen. Romans 8, 32, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also give us freely all things? Who will bring a charge against God's electos, God's? Titus one one, Paul the bond of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. First Peter one speaks of those who are chosen. First Peter two nine, a chosen race. Second Timothy two ten, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. The reality is God's word teaches that he chooses. And let me ask you this question. Is God fair? Is he just? Yes, he is. Is he partial? No, he has no partiality with God. Let me ask you another question. Well, we know he does everything that's good and righteous, but another question, did God ask your permission to create you? He didn't. Did he ask your permission for what day your birthday would be? He didn't. He didn't. But mark this, God is always good, he's always fair, and there's no partiality Because along with this truth of election comes the clear truth of the universality of the gospel call and the responsibility of all men to respond to the truth. And the ability to also, by the way. You see, man is eternally responsible for rejecting Christ. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish. Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior of the world. The gospel goes out to all, and all are responsible to respond and not harden their hearts as the Spirit convicts through the Word of God. Even Jesus himself grieves over those who don't repent in Jerusalem, who were unwilling. Very interesting passage, Matthew 23, 7, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often, this is God in flesh, I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under his wings, and you were unwilling. That's the problem. That's the problem. Ezekiel eighteen thirty-two. for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord, therefore repent and live. The offer is available to all, and God takes no pleasure in those who reject. But yet, in some way, in his sovereignty, he chooses. Many are called, few are chosen. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. 14. So then, he says, knowing. I know that God chose you because of your response to the gospel. We could never know before. We can always look back and know, Right? Right? Someone said, you know, in the heaven it says, whosoever believes, you know, is welcome in Christ, and after they get in, chosen before the foundation of the earth. So then I can't figure it out, but God is fair, and He's God, and His gospel offer is genuine to all. Yet only the ones He choose will be saved. How do I under- How do I know that? I don't understand. But I don't want to sin by reacting theologically or rationally to try to work it all out. That's sin. Those groups that take election and make it the pinnacle of everything, they lessen other truths in Scripture. They cause division and problems. And the other groups that reject that truth and make it all emotional do the same thing. Let's just take the truth, believe it, and say it's in God's hands, and move on because God says it. He says, knowing of God's choice of you. And notice he says here, to finish up, here's the explanation for Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The gospel didn't just come as words. It came in power. God's word is powerful. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It came by the power of the Spirit of God with full conviction. No half-hearted conversions. They weren't sort of sure if they were believing in Jesus or not. Full conviction. Full conviction. So he could say, I know of his choice of you. Because it's evident in how you responded to the word of God. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 13. And it's evident in your life now. It's evident now. Full conviction. We'll have to finish up next time on the last part of verse 5. But we'll see. That just as you know what kind of men we proved to be, hey, you saw it in us too. You saw the evidence. So then, what verdict does the evidence of your life bring about? You've heard the word of God? God loves you? Can you spot a true believer? I'm talking about looking at yourself. Does your faith work? Does your love toil? As your hope and doer. Maybe if it's not the case, maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you've never really fully humbled yourself to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And today's the day of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He'll save you. And then He'll change you from the inside, and then you will see that your faith works, and you will see that He's changed your disposition to love the body of Christ. And you'll see he's given you a hope in his son, Jesus Christ, because that comes from him. And then, brother and sister, if you really are saved and these things are lacking in your life, there's only one thing that's in the way, and it's sin. And that sin is usually associated with selfishness, self-focus. I want it my way. It's not happening my way, so I'm not going to do it. Well, I'm so glad Jesus didn't say that. I'm so glad, and we need to be like Christ Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, and it is so wonderful to hear it. It is so wonderful to see what you do in the lives of those who are truly saved. And I thank you for uh, many that I can see outwardly, a true work of faith and a labor of love and a steadfastness of hope. It's a joy to me to see that. And Father, yet you know my heart. I'm grieved when I see the opposite, and some who say they know you, and probably do. Pray you would have weed that out today. Today would be the day that these areas are gone. Pray for that. And I pray for any other person here who doesn't know you, that today would also be the day of salvation. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. Thank you for your son. And may you have your way in what we choose to do in our lives. May we yield to you. May your will be done. Jesus' name.